to continue our study of the Jerusalem Council. In Acts 15, we'll be reading verses 6 through 21, and then concentrating again on uh, verse 10. Before we go any further, though, let's pray together. Father, we are so very grateful for this Lord's Day. We pray that you take the means of grace that you've given us and that you use, the, use them, Lord, to make us more like Christ. Father, we also pray that your spirit helps us understand what we read and that your spirit helps us understand what we study and how to apply it to our lives conviction where there needs to be conviction comfort where there needs to be comfort encouragement where there needs to be strengthening help where there needs to be help christ you are our good shepherd and no one knows but you how each individual that's gathered here and we as a church family as a whole need to be ministered to this morning. So we humbly trust your spirit and your word will accomplish what you desire for it to accomplish. And I agree with my brother what's been prayed already. We do pray that today will be the day of salvation for one or many. That they'll look to Christ and live been reminded this week of just how temporary this life is yet again the things that we often live for hope for long for or trust in they really are temporary and empty and vain you're the only one lord that's eternal and the root of our hope so God, help us to see Christ today, high, exalted, and lifted up. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we go back to God's word this morning in Acts chapter 15, we find ourselves wrestling again with the question that we began to study last week, which is really what was at the heart of the matter when it came to the Jerusalem Council. They had already determined, if you remember, how a Gentile was to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But in all of that discussion, there was a little deeper matter that they really had to wade through and they really did have to work through and they really did have to figure out. And times change and seasons changes and places changes and kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But we as God's people still need to figure it out we still need to figure out what this relationship is between the law and the gospel because that's really what they were wrestling with at the heart of the jerusalem council we've seen that peter shows the significance of this moment in time in verse 10 when he talked about how they were putting god to the trial or putting god to the test and we talked about how that looked like practically as if they were sitting in judgment of God and his word to see whether or not what he said was actually right and what he said was actually true. 
I think we would all agree this morning that that's a dangerous place to be. We don't want to be there. We don't have the right to judge God, nor judge his word, nor his plan of redemption. And Peter said in verse 10, he likened it, if you remember, to a yoke. That they were putting a yoke or a burden on these Gentile believers that, that no one had been able to bear. And so he really began to kind of wade through this idea of the wrong use of the law and the gospel in contrast with the right use of the law and the gospel. So we're going to pick back up there this morning and, and build off of what we discussed last week. Look with me, please, at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Go back with me now, please, to verse 10. We're going to do a little bit more work this morning, a little bit more digging on this right understanding of the law and the gospel in contrast to the wrong understanding of the law and the gospel. And just by way of reminder, what was being said in verse 1 and what was being said in verse 5 that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and they needed to keep the whole law in order to be saved. That is the wrong use of the law and the gospel. That's what Peter is talking about in verse 10. 
And if you remember, I took you last week to Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, in verses 28 through 30, we looked at what Christ said about his yoke in contrast to the yoke of the old covenant. Christ said that his yoke was easy and that his burden was, was light. You ever wonder why he said that? Well, I mean, now you are because I'm asking you. But before I ask you, you ever wondered? We often think when we hear that Christ says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We often think about the fact that God will just help us through troubles. Amen. He does. Praise God. <laughs> he helps us through troubles. He helps us through trials. He helps us through struggles. So there's a truth there. But there's something more that we need to think about. There's something deeper that we need to think about. This yoke that Christ is talking about is the way he relates to the law and the gospel. That's what makes the yoke easy. That's what makes the yoke light. That's what makes his burden easy. That's what makes his burden light. It's very, very important. So what does he mean by my yoke is easy, my burden is light in contrast to the yoke in the Old Testament? I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 5, please. And in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin to try to unpack what Jesus is talking about. Matthew chapter 5, find your way to verse 17. Now there's a lot here, we're not going to get to it all today. But we're going to take off a little bite-sized chunk and unpack it. Notice what Christ said. This is very important. And I want you to remember what I told you from Matthew 11. Keep in mind this yoke that Christ gives. The two things that are coupled together, what makes it easy and what makes it light. <coughs> Excuse me. Christ says, do not think <coughs> I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. <coughs> I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we, again, won't get all to all of that this week, but I want you to focus on verse 17. Christ says some things that are important here in regards to the law, in regards to this yoke that he carries that's easy and light. Notice what he says. First, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Notice next, verse 17, instead of abolishing them, what did he actually come to do? He came to actually fulfill them. That's what makes the yoke easy. 
and that's what makes the burden light. He did not take it away. He did not do away with it. He did not cast it aside, but instead we're going to see he fulfilled it. And what specifically he fulfilled. So I want you to get this right now. If your mind has wandered and you're focused on other things, I want you to come back to me right now because I want you to hear me very carefully. What we're learning here is this. In order to understand the right relationship of the law and the gospel, we have to look at how Jesus relates to the law and the gospel. He's the answer. He's the answer. Many people have gotten this wrong. So, let me help you. So, what was his relationship to the law? Well, there were three aspects to the law. You may or you may not know. If you are a note taker, you may want to jot these things down. If you're not a note taker, you may want to jot these things down. Or you can listen again online. The three aspects of the law that Christ says he did not abolish but fulfilled are these. One, the ceremonial law. Two, the judicial or the civil law. And three, the moral law. Now, we're not going to get to all of this today and all the implications of this, but we're going to take one bite-sized chunk like I've already mentioned. So the three aspects of the law, again, are the three parts of the law that he fulfilled. Number one, the ceremonial. Two, the judicial or civil. And three, the moral. I want you to understand this before we go any further. It's important that Christ fulfilled all three. Because if he didn't fulfill all three... We are not justified before a holy and righteous God. We have no hope. Our justification before God and God's court of law against a holy and righteous God is null and void and does not exist. So it's very important for us as believers that we rightly understand the law and the gospel and exactly what's meant by what Christ kept and why it's important. Let's start with the ceremonial law. First, what that means is this, and you do need to understand there's a lot more to this than what we're going to go over today. But first, it means this, the ceremonial laws were all the laws that had to do with the religious worship of Israel in the Old Testament. All the religious laws that had to do with the worship of God in the Old Testament. It had to do with the laws that regarded the sacrifices all of those sacrifices that you read about are there for a reason. They are important. All of the laws that were in regards to the ceremonies that they were to keep, like the Feast of Jubilee, like the Feast of Weeks, all of these were done on purpose. All of these had deeper meaning. The offerings both the sin offerings and the free will offerings and others, the thanksgiving offerings and the rituals. So these laws regarded the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the offerings, and the rituals. This is so cool. All these laws pointed to Christ in types and shadows. 
all these laws pointing to Christ in types and shadows. First, Christ is the sacrifice that's pointed to in the sacrificial system. He is the sacrifice. Two, Christ is the offering. Amen? Three, Christ is the altar, which is pretty awesome. And four, Christ is the great high priest. Colossians 2.17, I quoted from this last week, but it says that the substance of the law is Christ. The substance of all of it is found and culminating in Christ. Go with me to, to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Remember, while you're turning to Hebrews 9.15, don't forget what we're looking at. What we're answering is, why was Christ's yoke easy and his burden light? What did he accomplish? What did he fulfill? I.e., why do we have hope? Hebrews 9. You ever try to find it and you can't find it? I'm having a problem right now. There we go. Hebrews 9.15. talking about Christ. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ is the go-between between God and man. That's the importance of the incarnation. He had to be God and or he was God, but he had to become man so that he could, <clears throat> when he cuts this covenant, be a right <clears throat> mediator. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never but the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Oh, listen to verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Drop down to verse 11. Same chapter. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers, 
sisters, Christ completely and fully fulfilled the ceremonial laws. All of it, the rituals, the sacrifices, the feasts, the ceremonies, all of it, Christ fully fulfilled. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to argue for in the entire book. He's saying that Christ is better than everything because everything points to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, he also fulfills the judicial law or the civil law. Perhaps you've never given this much consideration before. Perhaps you've thought about the ceremonial laws, but you've never really thought about the judicial laws. Well, God gave laws to govern the people of Israel as well, to govern their lives. They were very simply this. You ready? All those judicial laws were, were simply applications of the Ten Commandments. That's all they were was how they could love God and love others in community with God as their king. That's what it was about. And Jesus fulfills that as well. Listen to this. Jesus fulfilled the judicial law by breaking down the division of Jew and Gentile. That's awesome. That was physically seen, by the way, with the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom signifying that no man could have done that but only a holy God whose wrath had been satisfied by the perfect payment by the perfect sacrifice by the son of God himself Christ makes two one you can look at Ephesians 2 11 through 22 and study that later Ephesians 2 11 through 22 Christ also fulfilled the judicial and civil law by obeying the judicial law insofar as the Jews were governing themselves according to the Ten Commandments. <laughs> we know when you read the Gospels that the Pharisees had added a bunch of stuff that were never intended to be added. They had gone farther than the law ever ever was supposed to go because they added human conditions and human traditions and human requirements. This is why Christ said that they were self-righteous. This is why Christ said, you say you know the scriptures and you search the scriptures, but you don't know me because the scriptures testify of me. Christ fulfilled the judicial law in as far as they were keeping with the Ten Commandments. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Very familiar passage of scripture. This is the passage of scripture where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus again. And they ask him about tithing and they ask him about giving and they ask him about paying taxes specifically a look at verse 15 and the pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words and when they sent their disciples to him along with the herodians saying teacher we know that you are true and teach the way of god truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful 
to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Verse 21, they said, Caesar's. All right. Now I want to show you in what Christ is saying that he's keeping the judicial law insofar as it's in keeping with the Ten Commandments. Notice his response. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. What's he saying here? He's saying here, you don't have the right and I don't have the right to go against what God's already said. He's the one that's established authority. He's the one that's put us underneath the Roman government. We need to obey our leaders. But at the same time, we need to also keep what God's put in place for us as well. It's just an example of what I'm talking about. We can find others as well. Now, hear me carefully. When you think about this judicial law, maybe you've never thought about this before, but you need to. Jesus' fulfilling of the judicial law means for us, 2,000 years removed, us Gentiles, it means for us, we can't be judged or condemned for not keeping the judicial or civil law. Why? Christ kept it for who? For his people. Just like he kept the ceremonial law for his people, he kept the judicial law for his people. People. That's awesome. Number three, the third aspect of the law is the moral law. The moral law. The moral law we know is the law that's written on our hearts, part of being an image bearer. When God made Adam and Eve and God put Adam and Eve into the garden, he gave them various tasks to accomplish. But when we think about this fact that they were image bearers, what it means, one of the things that it means is that they had God's law written on their hearts. God's law that was written on their heart, which they broke all ten commandments, by the way, in eating the forbidden fruit. They were already transgressors and lawbreakers. God made more clear even at Sinai when he gave the ten commandments in Exodus chapter 20. So God's moral law is his Ten Commandments. Here's what that means. Here's what Christ did. Christ kept the Ten Commandments for his people. Christ kept the Ten Commandments for those who did not keep the Ten Commandments. It also means that Christ died for a people that did not keep the Ten Commandments. Christ died for his people. He died for transgressors. He died for lawbreakers. He kept the moral law. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. Go with me now to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. When you get to Romans 10, look with me at verse 4. What does Romans 10, 4 say? For Christ is the what? 
this is really awesome. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why is that verse true? Because he kept the ceremonial law. He kept the civil law. He kept the moral law. Christ is the end of the law. Do you understand that the gospel is as clear in the Old Testament? The gospel is as clear in the law as it is in John 3, 16. It's so clear. We need Christ. We need a substitute. We need someone that's not like us. We need a righteousness that's not our own. We need what the Puritans said. We need an alien righteousness, a, a righteousness that does not come from us, a righteousness that can be credited to our account. We needed someone to die for us. We need someone to become a curse for us because the Bible says that all those that have broken the law are under the curse of God. And biblically, when you're under the curse of God, that is not a good thing. It means you're under the wrath of God. Cut off from the hope of salvation. And Christ became a curse for us. Let me show you what Paul says in Galatians 3. Galatians 3 verse 10. Remember Romans 10 4. Christ is the end of the law. The ceremonial law. The moral law. The civil law. He kept for us what we could not keep. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by it. Or in other words, keep it or remain in it. Literally, to remain in it. We can't by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now, verse 11, it is evident that no one is justified or made right before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Oh, but listen to verse 13. If you're here and you don't know Christ, he is near you even now as I'm talking, as I'm preaching. The Spirit of God is working in your heart and drawing you to himself and trying to open your eyes or opening your eyes rather to help you see the light of the gospel and your need for Christ. Look at verse 13. Here is your hope. Yes, you're condemned. But look at verse 13. Here is your hope. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, curses everyone who is hung or hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's really awesome. This is the heart of the gospel. This is why you can't separate the law from the gospel. This is why Christ would say that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason that it's easy and the reason that it's light is because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if for whatever reason God gave you a million do-overs. Young people, you know how you're not doing so hot at video games and you hit the reset button. If God gave you a million resets. You couldn't in a million lifetimes keep it. God did something better than giving you a million resets. He gave you himself. He sent Christ to become a curse for you and for me and for all of his people. 
really, really important. Go to Galatians 4, 4. See what I'm talking about. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I know I'm, I'm listening. I, I, I hear that I, that I need God. What, what do I need to do to be made right with this holy God? The Bible simply says, turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ. That's the biblical response to the gospel. And then there's a promise that the Bible gives as well, which says when we come to God's term, when we come to God on his terms, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Not because of you or not because of me, but because of Christ, because of what Christ has done, because he kept the ceremonial law, because he kept the civil law, because he kept the moral law for his people. Oh, it's so important. What do we learn about this right relationship of the law and the gospel? Christ kept it and suffered in our place. This is so important. This is why they were putting God to the test in verse 10 of Galatians, excuse me, of Acts 15. Because it was going to undo the whole new covenant. Such a crucial moment. They had to get the gospel right. We're getting ready to celebrate Reformation Day, where later brothers would get the gospel right again. We never need to stop getting the gospel right, brothers and sisters. We need to get Acts 15, 10 right, just like the first century church got it right. They did not need to identify with the ethnic Jews. They needed to identify with Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. Ernie Reisinger said this. The law was unfulfilled apart from Christ. Think about that. Apart from Christ, the law would be unfulfilled because no one could fulfill it. He also said the law is empty whenever it is separated from Christ. To take them back to circumcision and keeping the law would have been to strip everything out of the gospel. This is why it was such a crucial moment. Now, I've said this already. One place I want you to go. Go back to Galatians. You may still be there. Go to verse 16 of chapter 2. And we'll be done. Galatians 2.16. I've talked about this. Talked about this. I'm going to talk about this again. This is why Paul would say that we have no room to boast except in Christ. We have no hope except for Christ. Because our justification rises and falls on Christ's finished work. It does. This is what justification is about. Look at verse 16 of Galatians 2. The Bible says, Yet we know that a person is not justified or made right by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
I wonder this morning as we close if this is true of you. Maybe someone that's here or someone that's listening online. Is this true of you? Have you been made right with the Holy God by faith in the promise? There's a hymn that I'm enjoying listening to. It's a modern hymn that talks about Pastor Jim, justification by faith. And this is everything you've been teaching us in Romans. It's called His Robes for Mine. The great exchange, Christ's righteousness for my unrighteousness. It's an amazing thing. Here's one line of the hymn. His robes for mine. What cause have I to dread? I don't have any. He goes on to say, God's daunting law. Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works, not mine. Saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. Brothers and sisters, if you're in the faith, that ought to make you smile. That ought to make you shout, Pastor Jim. That ought to make you happy. We have a living hope. A living hope. Think about how many people right now have lost everything in a storm and they have no hope because all their stuff was their hope. But we have a living hope because this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're journeying to a better place because of Christ. We have a living hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to exercise the means of grace. Father, we are grateful for what Christ has accomplished. Not only are we grateful, but we're humbled. When we think about the magnitude of what we just talked about, God, how in the world could we have any other posture other than humility and thankfulness? God, we are grateful and we are thankful. God, we are thankful that you did for us what we could not do and that you had a plan that you marked out from the beginning of time before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. And we're thankful that because of Christ's person and because of Christ's work, we can be made right with you. Christ, we're thankful that your yoke is easy and your burden is light because you have fulfilled the law. God, help us understand this morning that we need to see that our right relationship to the law and the gospel should be the way that you see the law and the gospel, Christ. Keep us from legalism. Keep us from antinomianism, God. Tether us to Christ and never let us go. May we never get over the gospel, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to stand on your feet as we close with a song.
together is what it takes.